Let me ask you. Well, first of Anything all, you want. Yeah, let me just step back because you have a reputation for being pretty candid, as does Bob Dole. Um, are we, is one of the consequences of, of, of the modern media that we have fewer people who are outspoken? I mean, is that, is that part of the price of the, of the modern media and the way they cover politicians? I mean, everyone says we want authenticity. We want people to tell us what they really think. But then when they do it, you know, you get these dust-ups turned into mm-hmm. more than dust-ups. I mean, well, I, I saw all that change. I was a state legislator for 13 years and then Senate for 18, so 31 years of this stuff. When I started, uh, you'd meet the guy in Cheyenne from uh, uh, AP, the AP guy, uh, great guy, Bob Leeright. I'd like to, why don't we sit down and have dinner? I'd like to ask you what's going on, uh, you know, what bills you're interested in, so you go to dinner, have a couple of belts, and, and talk very openly. I, I got an education bill, I think it's a piece of crap, but got something here I think is very worthwhile. And at the end of the, of the day, uh, or a week later, you might read a report about, you know, things, whether my name was attached to it or not, but that would be valid as to making the system roll along. Maybe in, in earthy ways, I would have said this is a piece of shit, which I've done before. <laughs> so, suddenly then, uh, I don't know what it was in the Wyoming legislature, but it began to change uh, when, when I said to a, a, a trusted reporter, I said, this bill is bullshit. And the headline the next day is, Simpson says, bill is bullshit which is really, uh, to me, was a total violation of, of where we had been before. It wasn't Leeride, another guy. Then when I got here, remember, remember the series of things that happened with Packwood when he sat with that pal of his every morning, you know, on Saturday morning, and they chatted about things. And, uh, and then the guy ran a whole series. Uh, uh, he did that with Stockman. That's right. But he did one with Packwood, okay. too. Maybe he's a different guy, but here suddenly everything has shifted from confidential little sessions. Could we just sit and visit, like with Bob Woodward? I've done those with Bob. And as far as I have observed, he's never dropped the harpoon in me, but there are people walking around looking like porcupines <laughs> where old Bob's drifted the harpoon <laughs> into him. And uh, anyway, it all changed. And then out here, one... Remember Jake Garn and I were separately interviewed, he with the Salt Lake Tribune, me with the New York Times, and I'd known this guy a long time, and I said, this bill is bullshit, and the headline was, Simpson says this bill is bullshit. And it was the same day that, that Garn had said that some bill, the Salt Lake Tribune, he said this bill is bullshit, and our mothers called us the same day. <laughs> said, we, we never learned that word here, and we don't want to ever hear it again. I said, Mom, uh, Dad taught it to us. You didn't. And, uh, but, uh, Did you ever hear Bob Dole call a bill bullshit? The what? Did no. you ever hear Bob Dole call a bill bullshit? No. That was the amazing thing about Bob Dole. Uh, I did the swearing for him. <laughs> I was his assistant leader. I don't think, I don't think he, he never judged people about profanity. There's a difference between obscenity and profanity. It's a thin line, but 
yeah. one you want to preserve if you're profane. Uh, he, he was a genial, uh, gentle man. He'd, he'd had all the, all the pain and anguish wrung out of him during his rehabilitation, uh, where he knew that he wouldn't even be here if, if he were filled with bitterness or hate. And he wasn't, he didn't have any of that. He didn't have to wander any of that out. The rest of us all did, but I really honestly, and I know that he's in frustration, some would say damn it or something, but I don't believe that I ever heard Bob say bullshit. Yeah. And Am it's I interesting. Wrong? Am I? No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think, uh, I think that's true. but you're also, your comment about his, uh, his tolerance of others, uh, because uh, Al D'Amato, needless to say, <laughs> we, he was a piece. He was a piece of work and a great friend. Now go ahead. What about the no, but I said, he was very tolerant of Dobardo. Oh, although I think he was—he'd uh, never heard anyone <laughs> with quite such a rich vocabulary. He outdid George Carlin. <laughs> he'd say, "Gee, God Almighty, what the hell?" He—he uh, he kept us—he kept us going, and he was very loyal to Dole. He was, yeah. always, he was always there for him. What was it about Dole that inspired loyalty? Well, to me, it was that he never, he never kept score on, on a guy. Uh, the, there's some classic things come to my mind. They may not fit in the, in the contextual of this, but you're going to slice it up anyway. Bob Smith uh, ran uh, for... Well, Bob Smith went up to his state of New Hampshire, to support Phil Graham against Bob Dole. That was that primary. Mm. And uh, he, really, he really slung it around. I mean, Bob was a big, tough guy. And Graham was a tough guy, too, really tough. And it, I think Dole, sometimes, if there was any sometimes conflict, uh, it would be with Phil, maybe, sometimes. Phil was very much his own guy, and he was cocky and very clever and, and a hell of a good legislator. Anyway, Smith laid himself on the line for Phil. Of course, Phil didn't get anywhere, and, and he handled it well with a lot of self-deface, uh, uh, self-denigrating humor. And uh, anyway, Smith came back, and we're back in business. And one day, he's sitting next to me, and he said, uh, God, he said, I got a bill that I really need but uh, I'm afraid to go to Dole and ask him to pull it to the top of the stack or, or get it up where we can get at it and debate it. I said, why? Well, he said, Jesus, you know, I worked hard for Phil. I said, Dole doesn't care, care about that crap. I said, he doesn't keep score. He said, well, I'm really worried about it. In fact, I, I said, I'm not going to go to him. For, you, you go to him and just say, Bob, I want to talk to you about this bill. And you didn't have to apologize what you did with Phil Graham. Bob wouldn't even think of, you know, keeping that, that score. About a day later, old Smith came and he said, gee, you know, his eyes were big. He said, I, I can't believe it. I went to see Dole and I said, you know, I got this bill, Bob. And Bob said, well, what is it? Tell me about it. He said, yeah, we'll get that up, sure. How you been? How, you have a good, you know. It just, it puzzled. Bob, because perhaps he would have done that, <laughs> or so many would have, you know, keeping score. I never yeah. saw Bob Dole keep score. That's why he was a good leader. 
you knew damn well that if you didn't stick with him, uh, that he wouldn't next time say, you know, I remember on that vote, you, I needed your vote and you weren't with me now. Uh, you want me to do something or give you some time to do this or get a bill and I can't do it. I never heard him use leverage on a person mm. like that ever, which has really made him, a, a, you know, people respect his. The coin of the, of the Senate, the only currency is, is trust and respect. There is no other coinage. And once you violate that, you never forget the guy that, that did it to you. Mm. That doesn't mean you go keep score on him, but you just know that this is... This is a guy you can't trust. And there was one guy, and I named nameless. Yep. And I'd, he'd say, go find out, Al, where the hell we are on this. So I'd have my little tab, Y, N, and U. And I'd go up and say, you with me? Yes, and then no, and then this U, which meant undecided. And this one guy's watching me tab him up, and I had a series of those votes all listed. And he said, "What's what's all that you there?" I said, "This is you. This is this is who you are, Mister Undecided. You're a phantom, a sparrow fart in the midst of a windstorm around here, and you're nothing. We can't count on you. We can't rely on." Oh, so that's not true. I said, "Well, here are the votes." And I mean, there were, there was one time Dole had him ten minutes before the vote. He said, "Yes, he would." And he came in and voted no, and then, you know, cocked his head and went out the door, and Dole went over and said, what, what are you doing? Well, I had to call him a constituent, you know, and it just, you know, I knew then, right then, I couldn't. Bob said, do you ever do anything on your own, on your own volition, without pressure from somebody and some source or some group? Do you ever do that? That's the harshest I'd ever, but, uh, you know. You what know. what are the weapons that a that a majority or minority leader have? I mean, there's the legend of Lyndon Johnson, and clearly that Senate's long gone. Um, the political culture that political culture is long gone. Um, what carrots and what sticks? Well, you are available. Use, you use the word weapons. If you're a leader, you don't use weapons. Use implements, uh, and uh, and uh, my dad was in the Senate when Lyndon was president, and he needed Dad's vote. Hell, there were only 33 Republicans in the Senate. Think about that. And Dad was supposed to be right of Goldwater, so anyway, he wasn't, but he was ascribed that. But uh, Lyndon called him in. He said, "Now, Millward, Millward, here. I mean, you're from Wyoming. It must be very arid out there, and probably just jackrabbits starving to death, carrying their own water, laughing. You know, he said, I can give you a dam. I can give you a, a thing out there. Something that'd really be good for you, just because, just for your little old vote." And Dad said, "I don't play that game." God, old Lyndon was just furious. And that was Lyndon. He he. And that wasn't leadership. That was clubbing people to death. What did they call it? A bourbon and water and a twist of the arm. Uh, was the Lyndon Johnson cocktail. Anyway, uh, uh, Dole. Uh, uh, he uh, he knew what you were interested in, what you needed. But where he was particularly uh, was his leadership was when. You know, I, I don't know when he slept, you know, it was, it was you know, he, he just, and, and all the crew, you know, 
I was right across the hall from him where the media couldn't see when I snuck over there to do my business. It was right next to the rotunda. And then I'd go right across the hall into Sheila's office, Sheila Burke and Joyce and all the rest of them. And, uh, and then right into Dole's office. I could get in there at any, any point. He said, just come in whenever you got something. Well, you know, he's visiting with people of affairs of state, you know, and very respected majority leader of the Senate and then a minority. Anyway, he, uh, when he'd say, uh, when you'd get a little message, uh, hey, Dole would like four or five of you to meet in the office, you know, <laughs> you knew that it was time to get off your butt. There was something going on. He'd sit there. Well, where are we with this thing here, you know? You guys have been working on that now for a couple of weeks. You getting close or anything? Well, no, we're, we're working on it. And he'd just, he'd just keep pushing, pushing. He had an amazing persistence. Push, push, push. And you never knew. I mean, you could be at a cocktail party or, or you could be on the floor between votes. He'd say, how you doing on that, uh, you know, and going like that? And you'd say, oh, well, we're working on it. So he, he never forgot he could juggle all that. I never saw him carry notes around. Uh, but he never forgot the, the lay of the land. Uh, and uh, and he, he, his, his, his charm of leadership was persistence, trust, and integrity of, of his own extraordinary uh, uh, worth. Uh, but... Uh, he just kept silently sometimes and, and pushing, but never getting in there and saying, look, I'm going to crack heads now unless you get this damn thing done. He just, he just would say, well, I'm going to check back with you in a couple of days, see where you are on that. And he'd do that with Democrats and Republicans. And then I don't know what George Mitchell shared with you, but I'm sure you could see a, a deep admiration that George had for, for Dole. And, and while he was doing his business uh, with uh, Mitchell and Byrd, uh, I was doing my business with Cranston and, uh, and uh, my old pal from Kentucky. And, uh, and uh, uh, sometimes things would break down between Dole and Mitchell, and then I'd go over to Cranston uh, and say, you know, he'd say, well, this isn't going anywhere because we know that Jesse's really messing around with us and going to blow something up. You know, they were always talking about Jesse blowing something up, and we were always talking about somebody else on their side blowing something up. And uh, I'd say, no, Al, here's the real story. The other is Wendell Ford was the other one. He called me a big skinny cowboy son of a bitch, and I called him the worst governor Kentucky had ever had. But anyway, we had a, a very nice uh, relationship, Wendell and I and Al Cranston. And, and we would, there weren't many times, but, but there's a reason for everything, and then there's a real reason. And in Washington, people hang up on, quote, the reason or, or the truth, and then there's the real reason or the real truth. And so I would just say, let me tell you what's happening. We got a guy in there, and I wouldn't use names, who's doing this. It ain't Jesse. And I tell you why he's doing it, because your guy, Ted, stuck it in his ear about two years ago, and he never forgot it. And he's feeling very petty, and he's going to screw you, 
and, and at least then they go back to their leadership and say, this is not about some giant trick. It's about pettiness, but it's real stuff instead of, you know, hypothetical stuff. So we could, we, we could always get through. And when Cranston went down in flames, you know, that was very sad because all he had done uh, was what the rest of us had done, except none of us liked to raise money like Al did. He'd get on the phone, raise money all day in a separate place, like you couldn't do it, but forgot to tell his staff that, you know, two weeks before he'd talked to this guy who dropped a cycle on him five grand each election, forgot to tell them not to have him come in a week later on an appointment. And they tied it together. Cranston asks the guy for money. Uh, three weeks later, the guy comes in for, a, for a, a visit. And they said, this is just ghastly. And he was nearly in tears. He got up on the floor and said, you know, you, all of you have done this, yeah. except, except your staff told you. He didn't blame his staff. He just, but he 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 loved. He spent the whole any any free hour was spent and getting it from Republicans. Well, enough of that. I won't romance. No, let me ask you, <coughs> just to sort of get the calendar straight here. You came to the Senate when? In in seventy eight. Now Dole had been here at that point close to a decade. Did I mean? Do you go to to older members for guidance? Of course, you, your your dad was in the Senate, so you were at, a, at an advantage, obviously, there. Mm -hmm. But uh, how does it work in terms of newcomers being sort of assimilated into the, into the institution? It worked awfully well for our group because there were 20 of us. There were 20 brand-new U.S. senators. None of us, a lot of us had been legislators, or a few of us. And there was a great bunch, 11 Republicans and 9 Democrats, and we were very close. Uh, we had the meetings together. Uh, for for a month, for about a year, every month we'd have a Democrat would pick the um, luncheon speaker, and then a Republican. We had uh, United Auto Workers, Levin invited him, and then Dave Broder I invited, and Nancy Kassebaum would invite, and Bird and Baker actually gathered us together and said, what are you doing in those? We said, well, we get together and talk, and they said, about what? Well, about how to answer the mail, because none of us, you know, had ever been faced with that. How to deal with the hounding constituents who, who were demanding everything. How to, how to just how to how to to exist. In there's, the, there's no class on how to be a senator. No, and and so, uh, and and in the Senate were people like Jack Javits and Mark Hatfield and Abe Ribicoff, you know. I'd heard of I'd heard of those people, man. Oh man, you know these were these were big time people, and uh, so you you looked up to them and uh, and learned from them and asked them questions. They loved that. They and Howard Baker was just uh, magnificent, and uh, I never hesitated to uh, to ask questions and say, look, I'm not here as a Republican. I'm here as a person trying to do something for the U.S. It's a sick idea, I know, but it was trying to do something. And uh, I remember uh, uh, Cranston was, you know, here he said, watch out for Al, you know, he's, he's, he's maybe a commie. That's what he is, of course. He's a nuclear-free American. God, you know. Well, then I get to visit with Al and find out he's... Uh, 
an old jock like I was, uh, that he went to Germany and read the Mein Kampf in German, came back here, saw it on a newsstand. He didn't read it in German, but it was he, that version came back here and it was totally different. He said, you're not reading this guy. This Al Cranston was a patriot. He said, beware of Adolf Hitler. The Mein Kampf you're reading in the New York bookstore is not the one in Munich. And, and it wasn't. I mean, totally different, you know, incendiary out there. And those were things he did, and, and I got to know him very well. And uh, then I went to his staff. I said, look, I'm on the Veterans Affairs Committee. What the hell are you doing here? Uh, what am I supposed to be? I was the ranking member. Now imagine when the Republicans took over in 80, get this, I suddenly became the chair of immigration refugee policy, uh, nuclear, civilian nuclear, nuclear regulation, and uh, Veterans Affairs. And the three, three ranking members were Ted Kennedy, Al Cranston and Gary Hart, all three running for president. And I went to each one of them and I said, look, look guys, you run for president, I'll chair the committee. I know it pains you because I've only been here two years and pisses you off, but it's just the way it is, just a sick shift of politics. And uh, you run for president, I'll run the committee, and I won't try to embarrass you, and I don't want you to embarrass me. Well, I'll tell you, it worked, and we had trust. And never, never, not one of those three, and they all ran for president. The only testy time was uh, uh, Tip O'Neill uh, had, uh, he was, he, I passed the immigration bill. Boy, I was the king of the beasts, you know, it passed by 76 to 20 or something. And then just laid there in the house. And uh, I shouldn't use names, but I will. Marty Tolchin became a very good friend of the New York Times, a lovely guy, a, a real, real journalist. One day he's out wandering around and he said, Hey Simpson, do you know Tip O'Neill? I said, Well, not very well. He said, Your bill's over there, you know, just roosting. And, and if Tip knew you knew that bill like you do without staff, he'd be impressed by that and he'd bring it up. I said, oh, thanks for the tip, <laughs> which you see is not supposed to, that would be an evil thing if that were reported, that a New York Times reporter told a sitting senator, you might want to move your bill by this, you know, I suppose that would get everybody in trouble. Anyway, I called Tip and I said, I'm Al Simpson, I got a bill over there, immigration. Oh, geez, that's hot stuff. I said, well, uh, I can tell you about it, it's a good bill. And it's probably the woman I'm living with. I never can stop this damn thing from... Hello? Who's speaking? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, I don't have my schedule. I'm sitting here being interviewed about Bob Dole. What do you think of that? You remember him, of course. 
Anyway, look, uh, we're in town. I was going to call Dick, tell him that, uh, what the hell is he doing today? Messing around? I'll, 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 I'll call a little later. I'm doing this. Anyway, I just want to talk to him anyway. But let me get back to you on that. That's very kind. We just came back from France yesterday. Okay. Uh, well, when I get near a schedule, we just got off the plane yesterday, and then I have to tonight to speak at Ted Hesburgh's 90th birthday. Yeah. Oh, yeah, great. So let me, uh, let me get back to you. Uh, we'll be in Cody tomorrow. Uh, um, but I, I will get back to you quickly, uh, finding out uh, uh, that that was November 6th. All right, my dear. I'll, uh, I'll get you. Okay. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Just an important social event there. <laughs> Sarkovsky. <laughs> you want a dinner at the White House? No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> Cheney's are putting on a dinner for Sarkovsky. November 6th, you probably want to go. No, <laughs> you mentioned though, Father Hesburgh. Yeah. I, I, got, I became very close to President Ford, and uh, that gave the last eulogy at his funeral in Grand Rapids. Oh, okay. And, and um, when you see I Father Hesburgh, that. you tell him one of the things that President Ford really cherished, uh, was so grateful, was for his service on the Vietnam Amnesty Board. Uh, Remember one of the first things Ford did, uh, even before the party. Do you have a card? Because I'll see Ted tonight. Oh, Give I me. don't, but I'll, 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 write, I'll, I'll write, write it down. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I, I but I mean, he really, to the end of his life, I mean, he was so grateful to Father Hesburgh for his willingness to serve. And, and that was really part of the healing process that Ford really wanted to try to undertake. I mean, classic Ford, you know. He go, where does he announce his program? He goes to the VFW convention in Chicago to announce a Vietnam amnesty program. And, you know, uh, but that was, you know, that's what made Ford Ford. And, yes, sure, sure but, but Hesburgh was yeah. willing to, you know, to be on it. And what it really was, they had, you know, they'd set up all of these hoops you had to jump through. Well, basically, I think Father Hesburgh sort of let everyone, everyone just, he threw open the door and I think 98% of the people who, you know, contacted them were, 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 were let in. But it was, uh, oh, it was typical of both of them. Typical mm -hmm. of both. Yeah. You were talking about... Uh, well, it was a great honor because Ted called and asked if I would do this. Really? And I came, yeah. I was in Paris and, and France for two weeks, and I said, pal, I'll make it. Is he in good health? His eyes are failing. He has people read to him. Really? And my granddaughter is a freshman at Notre Dame, and uh -huh. he found that out. And she has a, she did a GPA of GPS or whatever that is of 35. I call him, I said... She didn't need your help to get in there at all. <laughs> he said, "Don't give me that." <laughs> anyway, but but write that down because I will. I, I, have I will. To have, I, I will do a lot of things. You were talking about Tip O'Neill and the immigration bill. Yeah, yeah. Bill. So he uh, uh, he said, "Well, come on over." Then I've got my friend Ari Weiss here, if not his friend. You remember Ari Weiss was the Wizard of Oz. I mean, he was an amazing guy, and and. Uh, Oh, very devout uh, in his religion because he, he when it came to the, those periods, he walked to his, you know, I don't understand, although my brother is now one of the community, married into the community, our people, as he said, these are our people. <laughs> and so anyway, Ari Wise sat there. Tip said, you got any staff over here with you? I said, no. Well, what the hell is the bill about? And I'd say, it's what it does. 
he turned to Ari and said, is that right? And he rolled up his sleeves, lit a cigar, I knew choked. I used to smoke three packs a day. I thought, well, I'll suffer this one through. And, uh, and at the end he said, uh, I'll be damned. He said, that sounds pretty good. It's going to be tough, though. It'll be a lot of, a lot of controversy. I said, you're not kidding. And uh, he, uh, he then asked a lot more questions. And then R.E. Weiss asked a lot of questions. And, and when he finished, Tip got right up in my face. He said, I want to tell you something. I'm going to bring that son of a bitch up before November 1st. But if you say anything to anybody, you'll never see it ever <laughs> again in your whole life. So I go back to my office. What did Tip say? I don't know. I said, God knows. Just hanging by a thread. Never even told my wife. 53 years this year. But she never asked much about it. You know, she just knew that I was having fun, and she, she was a great supporter, is a great supporter. Well, sure enough, October, late October, he pulls this thing up. Well, it's election is coming up. And Hart called him, and, uh, and uh, Mondale. This was before their primary. Hmm. Anyway, it was, I had to be because both of them said, Jesus, what are you doing pulling up this unbelievable incendiary bomb while I'm out here in California working the Hispanic vote and I'm down in Texas and Mondale and, and Hart just assailed him in their own way. Hmm. He said, well, I'll tell you what, guys, you run for president and I'll run the house. And I'm going to get Simpson's bill up there. Well, of course, they tore it, you know, I mean, we got, it got it going. It got the debate going. And then the next year, we were able to pick up a lot of slack. But that was Tip, and he never violated. Oh. He, he, this was a handshake, and that's the way we did our business. I was at his uh, going away party at the family table, for God's sake, oh. uh, and talked to him a couple of weeks before he died, and he said, God damn it, I'm falling apart. Just exactly what Thurgood Marshall said. You remember they got in the house at a press conference, Thurgood said, I'm falling apart. And old Tip then was gone in a couple of weeks. Wonderful guy. But again, I was, I was still in that aura of, of, of trust. And, uh, and you just, it was easy to do. Is it, is it still there? I don't Has know. It been lost? Hell, don't ask me. I mean, yeah. if you read the paper all day, you'd say that there's nothing there. But, yeah. but yet, if you look at Kennedy and Enzi, now that Enzi took my place, and he and Ted are doing big time legislation. They're doing OSHA stuff. They're doing health care. They're doing stuff on the parity, mental health. You seeing anything about that? Hell well, no. That raises a question. Yeah, Hell I mean, no. how much of you it know. is distorted by media? Oh coverage or lack of coverage well they're they're they don't understand they're looking for all the rage of you know something emotional emotion fear either pass or kill a bill with the use of emotion fear guilt or racism and I knew that because everything I dealt with was filled with emotion fear guilt or racism immigration nuclear high-level waste Social Security veterans benefits Jesus you name it so every time people run out of facts on those issues, they repair to the lurking darkness of emotion, fear, guilt, and racism. So that was always uh, the toughest part. And then the media will always just pick, go for one of those, you know. Uh, 
uh, somebody said, well, how, what, will an, uh, uh, what will a good immigration bill look like? I said, whoever crafts the finest immigration reform bill ever made will be called a bigot and a xenophobe and a racist, so Merry Christmas. Whoever crafts the best high-level nuclear waste will be called a bomber of the ages, a destruction of the environment. Who, I mean, this is the way it goes in the media. Well, look at it. I mean, uh, you know, I don't watch television. What the hell is there to watch? Uh, what kid got pulled out of a swamp, a video camera for 10 days in a row, some poor bastard got jerked off the street and chopped in half. And, you know, Gertrude Van Esterlin or whatever, you know, just every night just straining milk to get to that pathos and anguish. Oh, God, you know, who, who cares? Let me ask you, because that, in a curious way that brings up this, Dole's career, in so many ways, this is bizarre, not bizarre, but really the trajectory of Dole's career, you know, over 40 years, the transformation of the media, you know, from going around to small-town newspapers in Kansas to, to dealing with, really, television's dominance, uh, even into the Internet age, and, and Jon Stewart and Saturday Night Live and, and all of that. Um, and he seems to have sort of adapted uh, as that culture underwent, you know, a transformation. I mean, is it? Can you explain that? Or well, I don't. I don't. I think he just always was who he was, and yeah. uh, and humor. And by the way, I, I I've met that. Her name is not Gertrude Van Heffer. No, no. <laughs> but you know, she does what people like. They yeah. like to watch that, and she's a hell of an interviewer. So yeah. you know, that's not my. I'm not the judge of that. Right. But. Uh, uh, Dole, uh, all, all humor comes from pain. That's a very important thing to learn in life. Anyone that you have ever met with a delicious sense of humor has worked through tremendous pain to the degree of their own definition, not yours or mine. Groucho Marx. I talked to Danny Kaye one night. He said, Simpson, I'm just a little Jewish kid on the streets of New York getting the crap kicked out of me every day by Irish guys and black guys, and, and I learned humor. And I had to, 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 to save my life to get to just getting kicked around. Groucho Marx, I never met him, but I sure met Kay, Bob Hope. I met him and knew him, and was going to do a shtick with him, and didn't get that done. So humor, that was Bob Dole's stock and trade. So with humor, you can adapt to any kind of humor, but he never, his humor was was never, you know, was, it could be biting, and, uh, uh, but it was never intended to be biting. It's a very interesting point. But humor, humor is the universal solvent against the abrasive elements of life. That was what my mother taught me. <laughs> and so Bob uh, was rich in that, and he could, you know, he could, uh, he could, uh, he could, Leaven any any heavy situation with humor. Poke, prick the prick the boil and, and lessen it. Uh, and was he a populist? And the reason I ask that is, people always understandably focus on the war years and see that as a transforming, defining part of of making him who he was. And I've always thought, 
that that, critical as it is, tends to overlook the experience of growing up dirt poor in the Depression in a small town in Kansas and the Dust Bowl and, and all that, the stoicism and the humor. Stoicism, that, yeah, you, you use that. That's and, very... and I wonder if there's a, a little bit of the, of the populist that he, that he brought out of that experience. I mean, whether it's, you know, pricking the pomposity of, of Washington types or, or talking about Gucci goats, uh, the lobbyists lined up who, you know, and looking out for people for whom there aren't lobbyists. Well, I think the, the great uh, plains of Kansas and open spaces produce people like that. Uh, something about, I think if you just grow up in a bunch of trees on the East Coast, <laughs> you, you don't see. You, you're, you're, you don't, if you step out in Kansas, I mean, there's a hill over there maybe that high, 400 yards away. And, or you go to Wyoming and the Teton Mountains are soaring up 6,000 feet in front of your face. It puts things in perspective when you grow up and you're a kid and you think, Jesus, this is big, bigger than bigger than big, and and I think it uh, it I think it gives you a better perspective. Uh, the heartland, uh, a lot of presidents from the heartland, Ohio, and you know, not to say the East and the West Coast aren't wonderful, you know, experiences, Big Sur and you know, Massachusetts and the Berkshires, all that. Well, enough of that, but but I. Uh, uh, to me, the saddest uh, thing was, and I got in a lot of trouble, not with anybody that loved him. We had a group called the Black Blackbeard Society. Remember during his campaign, Black Salt. Check that out. You want to? I, I I didn't form Howard Baker, Black Salt. Uh, oh, you know, Cannon, Jim. Jim, probably 15 guys, uh, and we'd meet uh, about the presidential campaign. How's it going? And uh, he had a manager, and I, I must mention his name, I guess, Scott Reed. And uh, uh, I uh, would sit there and I'd say, well, when, when are we going to see the real Bob Dole in this campaign. Well, you see, uh, Simpson, you, you will see him, and uh, you know, uh, you remember that uh, Mo Udall wrote a book, Too Funny to Be President. I said, yeah, and threw 200,000 more votes in six states, and he'd have beaten Jimmy Carter's ass. So I said, uh, it ain't a bad thing to use, especially when a, a lot of less people knew Mo than they knew Bob Dole. And Mo damn near won that that primary. Dole, his, his, his being is humor, the core of his being. And this guy and the, the handlers were telling him not to use humor during the campaign. Well, you could see, this is my view, see in a minute he wasn't comfortable with that. And then when he tried to use it, it, you know, it was almost like they'd visit with him at night and say, no, you, you brought up, you made a joke there in Omaha, you can't. It was just like they'd shackled Samson, you know, uh, at, the, at the temple. In, in that campaign, the year before, the fall of 95, your point is so on target, but it went beyond that because he, 
you know, I'd written speeches for him for years, and I had a sense, you know, this wasn't Bob Dole, and and he was trying to be something he wasn't, and 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 I wrote him a memo, and no great shakes, but it talked about, you know, you were a better candidate in '88 than you are this year, for a very simple reason, because you were yourself, and because authenticity is is your strong suit. Um, I mean, there's this kind of Truman-esque, plain-spoken, mm -hmm. not eloquent, not polished, but honest. And the un-Clinton, that's, that's, your, that's your strong suit. And humor is part of it. Um, and you're, you're, you're trying to be something that you're not, and you're not a very good actor. And, um, and you're feeding the crocodile, as Churchill said, with the, with the religious right. I mean, all of these things, the speech in Hollywood attacking, I mean, you know, it, it, just, it doesn't sound like Bob Dole. It was fascinating. I got a call from Time Magazine. They had a copy of the memo. Mm -hmm. And they had been with Dole, and he told them that he kept the memo on his desk and looked at it every day <laughs> and sent it over to the campaign. Well, you can imagine how many friends you know, that made for me. And I found out later on, Dole would leak the memo because he wanted to send a message to people like you and, the other, and governors and others that, hey, don't worry, I'm still me, I'm, you know, I'm just doing what I have to do. But I mean, that was the 96 campaign. And oh, he has said later on that 88 really was his year. That, that it was... Well, I, in my I, year too, he left me in charge of the Senate. I was the assistant leader and he said, hey Al, <laughs> he came in and he said, you gotta run the shop for about 18 weeks. I said. Who, me? Because I told him when, that the glorious day when I, I'd just been here one term and I was elected assistant majority leader of the Senate and he was elected majority leader by one vote over Ted. Ted is still looking for the three people that he knows, one of the three that did this heinous deed and, and I don't think he'll ever find them. But anyway, uh, so I told Dole the first day, I said, I want you to know something. Really, you need to know, I don't want that job. I'd never take the job. I would never run for leader. And, and so you don't need to hear footprints mashing around behind you. Anyway, uh, back to, well, anyway, I, uh, I laid it on Scott Reed. I said, you have taken my friend and taken the core of his being. And God, he got pissed. I said, stay pissed, pal, because I, I, you're leading him to defeat with whatever you're doing is not, it, it's disgusting to me. Well, I didn't know how many were listening to that, but when I came out, Sheila was standing behind the door and she went, we've been trying to say that. Yeah. Anyway, I see Scott goes on, I wish him well. I see he's a wizard, he's giving advice, but he sure as hell gave my dear friend Bob Dole the bummest advice that's ever been given to a political candidate, and I've told him that to his face. And he was furious, and I said, "Stay furious. This is just bullshit." So what anyway, about the, that said, so that the party, particularly, I mean, just singled them out, particularly the religious right. I mean, that Dole felt he had to accommodate them. Um, he wasn't very convincing, and the abortion issue, of course, you know. I mean, and again, the media, if you listen to the media, 
you'd think that there was no other issue in America. And certainly at the Republican convention in 96, no one cared about anything except the abortion plague. And how did Dole deal with that? As well as any presidential candidate could, that's my view, uh, would never be good enough for the purists. But you want to know that I have been pro-choice throughout my entire career and never shifted the position at all and said that abortion is a deeply intimate and personal decision and it shouldn't even be part of the platform. And I never got a bit of flack from anybody in my party in the Senate. Nor did I ever serve with anybody from Wyoming, if you can believe this, that held my view, including Sullivan, a Democrat, Herschler, the governor, a Democrat, Wallop, Cheney, Thomas, I mean, Q and we never talked about it for 30 seconds because we respected each other. So I just, I, I uh, although when they were pushing me as vice president uh, under Bush, when he picked Quayle, uh, three delegations said they'd walk out of New Orleans if I were the nominee, and I'd already told Bush, I said, don't put me up there. I've pissed off the veterans. I've pissed off the Social Security. The AARP is looking for me with hay hooks <laughs> to drag me through the mud. They've got the pike and, the, and the, my head on the, on the gate outside. Well, he said, I suppose that's right. Anyway, back to uh, what the hell we were talking about. Uh, oh, Dole. Uh, oh, uh, and and uh, well, yeah. In a larger sense, the party was transformed in those years. I mean, really, from the late '70s on. I mean, obviously, Ronald Reagan changed the party, uh, and yet Reagan was taken to task by some for not being sufficiently pure That's right. on on a number of issues, including arms control. Yeah. Remember, he was going to give away the store to the Soviets and. Uh, Oh, yeah, well, and Malcolm Wallop, you know, my great dear colleague was, you know, part of that, uh, that, that we were being patsies, we were not strong. Uh, that is only one time I saw Dole, I can't remember, but Malcolm was on a roll. You heard this one? And we were at a, a caucus, and uh, Malcolm was pushing, I think it was something in arms control, and Ma Malcolm was a Star Wars, and he had a staff that was tremendous, and and he kept probing for for something I can't remember, and and uh, Malcolm could be very persistent. I'd known him since we were seventeen-year-old boys. He has Parkinson's now and some liver cancer, but he's doing fine. And I talked to him, but I don't remember what triggered it, but I do remember the response. And Bob said. If you don't like this, you run for leader. You be the leader, Malcolm. I never, and Malcolm, because of his deep respect for Dole, just stopped. I don't, Malcolm didn't say another word, but Dole fired on that one. The cylinder went off. He said, if you don't like the way I lead, you run for leader, or okay, you be the leader, <clears throat> whatever it was. It was pungent. And and swift. Uh, I saw him do that uh, one other time when when Lowell Weicker was picking on David Stockman, <coughs> and Lowell was <coughs> six foot seven, weighed two hundred and thirty, and Stockman was five ten, weighed one hundred fifty eight, <coughs> and Lowell said, "I don't want any more of that." And then I 
be the brutal struggler. I said, you know, I tell you what, Lowell, I can see you'd like to pick old Stockman up and throw him like a javelin clear down toward the, toward the White House, but you're a bully. And old Liker, God, I'll never get to because he was big and, go, and a great guy. But anyway, those were those tension points you get to. But Dole, Dole, just, uh, he had an equanimity that was envious to all, and that's what any leader has to have. Is that's interesting because, of course, for a long time, as you know, the public perception was, was different. The, you know, from the 60s and when he was the sheriff of the Senate and the ultimate Nixon loyalist and, and, uh, and the Democrat wars line in 76. I mean, do you think he evolved <laughs> with time? I mean, do you think he, he changed uh, as he, as he uh, you know? What, uh, you adapt to, what's the Marine Corps slogan? Adapt and improvise and come back. Uh, he could adapt to any. He could adapt to being in the minority. That was a tough adaption, you know. He had been in the majority. He'd been the majority leader, and then suddenly there's a new majority leader. You adapt. Uh, there is a school of thought that the, the what, the real kind of turning point was, in '80 when you took the Senate, and all of a sudden he had an opportunity to demonstrate how responsible he could be. I mean that, as he said, you know. In the majority, you don't just issue press releases. You know, all of a sudden, you're held accountable <coughs> for for achievement, for legislating, and uh, you know that 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 period in the Finance Committee was critical to the Reagan to the success of the Reagan presidency, and yet he was no supply sider. How how did that how did that work out? How did he adapt to the new realities of Reagan's? Washington, and particularly an economic theory that uh, went against the grain. First of all, when did Russell Long leave? Did Russell leave in 82? Because oh. I think that was a key, because when, when Dole took over, he went to his first meeting and handed the gavel and said, uh, now your turn, Mr. Chairman, and Long said, no, you're the chairman now. But his respect for Long, the two of them, I mean, so Long must have stayed then until at least 82. And uh, so that, 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 th those were good years for Dole, those, that two years as leader and as the, you know, the former kingpin of the Finance Committee, which he couldn't hold as leader. I don't know who became, did, did, did. I think Packwood moved Packwood yeah. moved. Yeah. in 80 to chairman and Dole majority leader, but with Packwood and Long and Dole, I mean, you could get anything done. And that triumvirate. How? How so? Well, they just because of their affection and regard for each other, and none of them sneaking stuff over on each other. So what you're saying is the Senate, at least then, was still very much a personal institution. Oh, yeah. That's all it ever was. It, when I... Uh, when I came to the Senate, I said to Strom, who, hmm. guys at the pool hall, <laughs> hello, <coughs> I'm here and I uh, got into a cab and I said, take me to 950 F Street. And he, he said, it's six doors away, you crazy bastard. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Yes, I'm here. Uh, Six, four, six or seven doors down the road, it's at uh, 250 
Where is it? Where? Where are you? Oh, okay. Where is that from where I am? Hmm? Where's that? Yep. Just, uh, uh, you know, just a few doors down from the courtyard. But to E. Okay. Okay. What's that address? Oh, it's over there, but. You mentioned going to Strom. When you oh, yeah, I went to Strom, and I said, he said, Helen, oh, good to have you. I knew your father. Uh, your father was a fine man, man of integrity and common sense, and joyful person. I enjoyed your dear father. And I said, well, he enjoyed you, Strom. Strom he had seen Strom the day he jumped on that guy in the, in the hall when he pinned Yarborough. My father's office was right there. He came out and Strom sitting on this guy. He said, now, Millard, you just get back. I'm handling this. I got everything handled here. Keeping him from making a quorum in there. You knew that story. Anyway, geez. <laughs> well, so anyway, uh, I said, I want to be on the Judiciary Committee. I said, I chaired the Judiciary Committee in the Wyoming House, and I was assistant leader of the House and majority leader. And... Uh, he said, I'll talk to my friend Ted. Ted was in the majority, and, and that'll be taken care of. And so, and, and then Strom said, now, we have a good, good, good group of Republicans, Alan, except Matthias. We have to watch Matthias. And I said, watch, watch who? He said, Matthias, Matthias, Mac Matthias from Maryland. He always, he never could track, you know, Matthias because he was a very progressive Republican, a marvelous man. Anyway. Ted came up, my dad had told me, he said, when you get to the Senate, make, get to enjoy Ted Kennedy. He, he was one ahead of Ted in seniority, now imagine, 62, and Ted's still there. He said, because Ted caused his parents as much pain as you've caused your mother and I, and you'll enjoy each other, and we, we always have. So Ted put me on there, and I went to his staff, uh, to a wonderful staff, uh, Breyer, you know, Steve Breyer on the Supreme Court, and Ken Feinberg, uh, who did the settlement of the 9-11, and all those guys, and I said, look, just tell me what's going on. I didn't come here to trick, the just help me. You're professional staff, you're not just Democrats. That's the difference now. They've lost the thread of the professional staff there to help people on both sides. Now you don't help people with a D behind their name or you don't help people with an R behind their name. You try to screw them. And the reason is because the staffs have lost all their professional flavor and are simply people who worked on the campaign beating the crap out of the guys on the other side and they've never lost the bloodlust. And that's staff now as I perceive them. In those days, staff was solid people. David, uh, Bo David, David Boyce. You know, the great attorney was on Ted's staff when I started. Anyway, that's, uh, I digress. How did, how did Dole deal with both supply-side economics and the supply-siders? I mean, that, uh, he, he let them all in the door. That's what he did. That's how you do, deal with it. They come in and plead their case. Gun control, you know, here I was, you know, gun control in Wyoming is how steady you hold your rifle. There isn't anything to argue about. But, uh, you know, he'd bring in Baker, you know, Jim, I mean, not Jim Baker, you know, the, the man, dear, dear Jim, 
Oh, Brady. Sure. And his wife, uh, they were there in Dole's office often during that debate on the Brady bill. And uh, I tried to help them to a point. I said, there's a point I can't go past. But Dole, everybody had access to his, to his chamber. So it didn't matter if it was Jeffrey Sachs or, or Harvey Moglance. If they wanted to come in and talk, Dole would listen to them, and they'd leave knowing they had a hearing. Uh, they, didn't, they might not have known which way Dole was going. You don't even have to tell that, but at some point, Dole never left anybody hanging. He would finally, before the moment of truth came, he'd say, look, I'm not with you on that. That's all you expect. Just tell me where the hell you are instead of Mr. You for undecided. Those guys just drove you crazy. But now in 82, of course, there's Tefra, which is really an attempt to take back some of the ornaments that have been hung on the Christmas tree. And that would seem, it's a lot harder, I assume, passing a bill like that than it is passing a tax cut. Well, again, he had, uh, he had people who, who were not out to, to make it tough on him as, as majority, majority leader. Hines was helpful. When you lost Hines and Packwood on fiscal matters and health care, you lost uh, uh, some very bright people. But Packwood, uh, no wonder uh, Packwood and Bo Dole, uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it, was a, it was a very beautiful uh, relationship. And Bob tried desperately to save him. Uh, and I remember sent uh, John McCain and I to visit with Bob as to whether he should drop out. And without naming names, because some are still there, uh, we cut a deal. I was there. It was about 2 in the morning. And uh, Packwood would resign, and he would have all of his benefits. He would have his pension, and he would his health care. And he would step down. Very painful for him, but uh, only if we were to be certain that, uh, that the... Uh, leadership on the other side was not going to turn the entire file over to the Justice Department. And Packwood said, if that file is going to go forward to the Justice Department, I want to be in the U.S. Senate instead of a citizen, or I'm going to get it in the shorts. And the promise, well, well that, and Dole looked right at the guy and said, are you going to turn that over to the Justice Department? Well, you don't know. You just don't, you don't, and Dole said, and then I, I, I lost my marbles. I said, God damn it, I want to know right now, are you going to do that? Because if you are, we're just, we're just going to hang with old Bob, and you can just keep shrieking into the night. <clears throat> and uh, we really never uh, got it done. But the next morning, they turned it over to the Justice Department, the Democrats. It was the seediest thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And, of course, then there was no charge. No charges came down from the federal government against Packwood, and I can't remember how long he held tough or whatever. It's clouded, but I remember what was clouded was my mind with rage. I just, I nearly punched the guy out, and I said, you lying sack of crap. You, 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 you were going to do that all the way. You've been negotiating, negotiating all the time, you were going to stick it to Bob Packwood by turning that over, and you know damn well that they'd throw that out in a minute, but it would be good headline. One more stab. I don't know what that would have to do with anything, but, but well, Dole was so 
so trying so hard and, and working so diligently and honestly to get that done in a way which, which was foiled by uh, a, a vicious attitude. How comfortable was he with Reagan? Republicanism, economics, Reagan himself. We all loved Reagan. <laughs> he told good jokes. <laughs> jokes that never got out into the public, you know. And Dole would laugh at those, you know. There were some bad ones, like the Lone Ranger and Tondo and bad things. And the guy selling firewood, oh, Jesus. And, uh, and Dole would chuckle. And, of course, Reagan loved, he loved jo jokes. And, uh, and uh, he would occasionally call us over to the White House when she was down visiting her father in Scottsdale and say, just going to have a little stag here tonight and just tell stories. Not going to talk about anything. He'd have Howell Heflin and me and mumpers. You know, it didn't matter. Just guys who loved stories. Uh, but I think he, 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 he chuckled at Reagan. It was a it was a gentle chuckling like how does this guy get away with that that stuff? Because he he did and nobody ever went out in the street and said why the president just told the most offensive joke that I've ever heard. <laughs> and we all just laughed with a kindly chuckle. Bird, I never forget Bird. He said, Alan, what did that story mean? What did he mean by that? I said, Well, let me run through that. And Bert said, I don't, I don't tell dirty stories. It was a dirty story, wasn't it? I said, yeah, it was. <laughs> anyway, uh, where were we? Uh, but the, 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 the party was moving. You know, again, supply-side economics was not the old religion. I mean, it was not the balanced budget. I mean, we were sent to a dole, I mean, grounded in maybe his childhood, literally, uh, bred into him was a conviction, it's, it's almost, a, <clears throat> it's almost a, a religious conviction that you don't spend more than you take in. Yeah, but don't forget, Bob Dole was a legislator uh, on a grand scale. Uh, and I always felt that I was a bit like that on a, a scale because when it came down to Section 204D of the bill, I mean, they could give that to somebody else. And Dole, uh, he could pick up a theme of anything. If you sat with him for five minutes or three on a bill, he would know what that bill did and probably ramifications of it and, and good and bad. But you weren't ever going to draw him down into, uh, you know, the difference between the word uh, substantial versus uh, uh, excessive. Uh, and we'd send Danforth off to negotiate those. <laughs> but Dole would say, hey, Jack, I got a real deal for you. <laughs> Jack would say, God, what is it? Well, it's the, remember the tuna case up in Alaska where they were abusing the, the, the foreign workers and there was a big coup. And, and Dole, Dole knew how to delegate. He knew, he knew who, he knew every one of us what skills we had and then he would pull the lever and, and send us forward to battle. I said, uh, he's my captain. I'm his first lieutenant. I'd been in the Army. I'd go over the hill into any kind of flak for this guy. And under any circumstances, if he said, Al, I want you to go do this, I, I never hesitated. I'd go, Jesus, I got a visit with this guy. 
crapped all over you and me, and he doesn't do anything for the last. He said, "I know, Al, but you're gonna, you're gonna go give him the business." And I would go off into the into the war. But uh, he knew, he knew how to get McClure. He knew he 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 knew how to get Democrat votes. Uh, he he was he was he was a skillful. How skillful. did he get elected? What what do you think? Uh, <laughs> Well, first of all, running for <coughs> majority leader in '84. How do you run for majority leader? I mean, and 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 it's legendary that people do they lie to you? Do they change their mind after they they tell you they're going to vote for you? I mean, how how do you uh, how do you deal with that electorate? Well, you do what Dole did. He he would, he he knew the diversity of his of his crew. So he get old Alphonse in there and said, Alphonse, I need your help. Are you going to help me in my, and old Al would say, oh yeah, hell, what the hell, we got to get that done. Well, I, I'd like you to visit with so-and-so and so-and-so. And then he'd call in Packwood and, he, and he'd call in Hatfield. And uh, so you had your little webs of, of deputies out there, you know, getting votes. and. Anybody that said to you, well, that's great, we're just tickled to death, and good luck, just knock them off, just put them in a zero, you don't want anybody like that. <clears throat> but if they said, how can I help, who do you want me to talk to, man, then you know, and then you knew where you were, where the strength was coming. Uh, when I ran, they said, well, this is impossible, you've only been here one term, and hell, there were five guys, uh, there was uh, Gorton, and Luger, and Caston, and I came off in the first ballot, and then the second, and then the third, and then beat uh, Slade about 33 to 17 or 18. He came up and he said, that's the first election I've ever lost. I said, well, first one I've ever won. <laughs> he became a good, there, Slade Gorton, boy, there was a machine. He had a machine gun mind, and he knew, and Dole used him a lot. And we both used him. You had such skillful people to, to use, Lugar, Prince, uh, Prince of, of a man, ran for president, uh, never got anywhere. How sad that they didn't see the quality of, of him. Or Bill Bradley, uh, sad that you not see the quality of the man because of, you know, he didn't, you know, didn't like to hold a fish up at the market at Seattle, you know, and was dismissive or said something funny. I mean, you haven't got a prayer in that. So, anyway. Uh, where the hell Helms. were we? Uh, where, where did Helms fit in in all of this? Hmm? Oh, Helms. He could handle Helms. Nobody else could. Nobody could handle Jesse. Uh, but Dole, Dole could handle him. And oh. never, never in any harsh way would say, Jesse, now, you know, we need this. And I know you feel very strongly. We're not going to bring up abortion every, you know, three months. Not going to do that. Maybe every year. Not going to bring up prayer in schools every three months, maybe once a year. I know these are very important to you, but we don't, we're not going to do it every three or four months because it's destructive and disruptive. Well then, Dole would agree, but then the, the battalion of warriors over there in that hole where they met every Tuesday, you know, what the hell is that guy's name? He was with, well, you know, he injured himself severely in his back and, and uh, you know, he had, he, they all met over there, you know. They're still around. They, mm. you know, 
part of the Abramoff crew, uh, the one guy, uh, the Taxpayers for America. Grover Norquist. What? Grover Norquist. Grover Norquist. He may <coughs> be wearing orange pajamas uh, someday soon. He was just savage. He, he cut me to bits in, in Mazzoli. He, he passed out barcodes that you soaked in water and said, put this on your wrist. This is the Simpson Mazzoli ID, national ID. Uh, anyway, uh, Dole, uh, uh, they were furious at Dole. They said, you're going to bring up these social issues. They mean something, and we have this base. And, and I remember one day Dole, in all calmness, said, you know, uh, I hear you keep using this club over us here if we don't bring up this or that. I'm going to bring them up, but I'm not going to do it all the time. And, and by the way, uh, if the, quote, base doesn't like it, who the hell are they going to vote for anyway? He didn't say who the hell, he'd just say, where do they go? Well, I'll tell you where they go, they go home. Well, so what? Then, it, then if they're that strong and deep believers and they go home, suck their thumbs just because they don't get their way, what, what, what can I do with people like that? He had a way of just packing the lunch, putting it right back on them. And, uh, and, uh, but, but when you get to supply side and, and all those things and, and the tax code and, the, and things, he knew the themes. He was the virtuoso of the theme. He was the conductor of the orchestra. Uh, he had a guy playing the oboe and another guy playing the strings, and, but he was the orchestral manager. Why do you think that didn't translate into the presidential campaigns, that kind of thematic leadership? You know, the, 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 the rap was, he'd been in the Senate so long, he spoke that language, you know, of uh, appropriations and, and um, amendments. And, you know, you go outside the Beltway, and it's almost like a foreign language. It is. Uh, you, you can talk about legislation, and, and the media has already shaped the legislation. It's just like this immigration bill. This was an amnesty bill. It wasn't about amnesty, but it went down in flames because, because and my, my answer was, what the hell are you going to do with 12 million people? Just leave them here to be exploited? I mean, what the hell? Because they're going to be used, and, and they're, they're, they're abused, and they're, and they're illegal, and they're, they're treated like crap. Anyway. I didn't answer your question, but it got a lot off my chest there. Um, where the hell were we? Uh, why, why that? Maybe it's a larger question because there is, you know, we don't elect legislators as a rule. Is there, is there something, something almost disqualifying? There's almost this inverse relationship between the success a legislator has on Capitol Hill and the lack of success he has in running for president as it has evolved and defined today. I think that's uh, what you see. You know, look at uh, look at uh, look at uh, Joe Biden and Chris Dodd. Those are a couple of sharp guys. I know them well. Enjoyed them. And uh, Joe Biden is probably the most remarkable foreign policy guy that ever stepped into the breach here. And it's too arcane for them. They don't understand that you've a partition of Iraq into three parts with an oil, you know, they go, I don't, you know, they're not getting it, which is too bad. Lugar had that uh, marvelous ability to define, you know, about the nuclear aspects of we must freeze these around the world, the Lugar none and all the rest. Bradley and his beautiful way of, of history and expression 
was determined by the general electorate as arcane. And, uh, it doesn't fit into a soundbite. No. I remember one time uh, Clinton, I was still in the leadership, brought us in. He was going to talk about what he was going to say about Somalia and what would happen there. And there were about ten of us, both parties. And he gave this pitch last about a half hour. He said, that's what I'm going to say on national television next Tuesday. And he went around the room. He said, Simpson. And I enjoyed Clinton very much. His, his humor is impossible, which is good. And like Reagan, very earthy, very, and he and Reagan, much alike, you know, like schmoozers. If he walked in here right now, he'd charm everybody right out of the building. And he, uh, he said, what did you think? You don't look, I said, look, uh, it was great, but I'll tell you, if the guy on the bar stool in Buffalo, Wyoming can't understand that, what's the purpose of it? And they're never going to listen to 25 minutes of that. If you can't get that said in seven or eight minutes about Somalia, they don't care what you're going to do in Somalia. We said, thanks. Thanks a million, Al. I wish I hadn't called on you. <coughs> I said, well, if you hadn't, let us run it in anyway. He gave a talk next Tuesday, about seven or eight minutes, and I saw him a week later. He said, did the guy on the bar stool in Buffalo pick that up? I said, you ain't kidding. <laughs> and that's the way it has to be, and Clinton could do that. He could take the arcane and get it into emotion. It's the economy, stupid. What the hell did you need? Anything more than that. And little phrases like that that, no, you know, master. How did Dole get along with Clinton? Well, they, I think they enjoyed each other very much. And I think that came, you know, when they were invited there and, and, and Dole got that first visit in the White House. He said, I wish I, <laughs> what, what did he say? I've been looking forward to getting in there, but not in these circumstances. Anyway, uh, I think they had a, a very good relationship because I sat with them, you know, uh, for for that. Well, when was Clinton? Clinton was elected in '92, so I had four years. The government shut down. Hmm? The government shut down. Oh, Jesus! Must have driven Dole up the wall to be, in effect, held hostage by Newt and the bomb throwers in the house. I mean, what was that period like? Let me tell you, that was, that was I think, Bob's greatest uh, frustration and disappointment because he was part of the Andrews Air Base crew that were putting together the package. And, of course, everything was hanging with the horrible, you know, sword of no read my lips and finally, Domenici and Dole and other thoughtful people on both sides of the aisle, both sides in the Senate, said, look, Bush is ready to crack a bit on that. And, and the reason is is because we're going to get structural reform of the budget, two-year budgeting or four instead of two. We're going to get rid of this and that, and that's the package. And Dole would keep coming back to us. And there were guys in our party who said, I can't do that. This will be the end of us all. And Dole said, yeah, we'll be the end of America if we don't get a handle on this damn budget. So Dole would come back, and he would express very carefully all the negotiations that were going on at Andrews. And finally he said, guys, I need your help. And the president needs your help, because if we can do this and do it in the House, we can blunt the business of no new taxes. We can blunt that. Well, 
I think that boat was 60, 60 something, 63 or something to 30. And I went to the house. And if you really want to piss people off, which I do many occasions, go look at the roll call vote at the house. Well, they stuck it to George Bush. There were right-wing Republicans and left-wing Democrats that just punched his lights out vote by vote. Newt Gingrich, Henry Waxman, you know, bam, you know, all of them. Just, it's an amazing vote. I brought that up one night in front of the Heritage Society or something, and there was gagging and choking and puking and, um, you know, nausea. And uh, I said, you can't come in here and say that. I said, I just did. Go look at the roll call vote and see who screwed George Bush and lost him the election. Democrats, easy. They loved it. Pete Stark, the rest of them were just grinning from ear to ear. Well, then they went back and did another package. And in the new package, we lost all the structural reform, all the new budgeting, all the stuff to manage he had fought for and Dole had fought for. That was the most frustrating. I, I never saw Dole, you know, any more frustrated than, than that, to get the trust of the Senate and watch it go to the House and watch, uh, you know, Army and Newt and all the rest of these noble Republicans just, just killed the greatest structural reform we could have done in the budget. But I never saw Bob cry about it. He just he just couldn't understand it. And uh, and of course, uh, did he understand Newt? That raises <coughs> this logical question because there clearly is this accelerating process where the party is moving further and further to the right, um, both socially, culturally, but also it's basically become the new orthodoxy that deficits don't matter. Well, this Republican Party is going to get cremated on that one. Yeah. I mean, how did Dole, you know, on the personal level, what was the relationship with, with Gingrich? I, I have no idea. I, I had, uh, here when I was assistant majority leader, the new assistant majority leader of the House was Tom Foley. So I went right over. I said, hey, Tom, we, we could be king. He said, the country's in deep crap with you and me as assistant majority leaders. He a Democrat and me Republican. We had a wonderful friendship and uh, worked together, met with each other. Well, then when Newt came in and we're assistant leaders, he said, we should get together. I said, great, we'll do it, you know, what, once every couple of weeks. You know, you, my office, I said, I'll come to your office first. Went over to his office on a Monday, I think, and he said, uh, I read uh, four books uh, this weekend, and I think you, I think you would really be impressed, especially if you could give me your thoughts on this one. Well, I just stared at. Him. He said this one book was really enormous. I'm thinking, how did I get in here? And finally, I, I said, well, let me look at that. And I thought, well, this is interesting. I hadn't gotten past page 142 of Lonesome Dove in four years. And yet I do keep up. So the next time he came to my office, and he said, I read three books this weekend. I think if you could just take a look at one, then maybe we could get a theme. And I thought, I mean, this is not my bag. I'm not into this. Finally, he said, I, you don't look enthused by this. He said, what did you do? Well, I said, uh, I was in Wyoming all weekend. It takes me, you know, got to go Denver, Dulles, uh, 
and it's a huge state, and, 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 but when I wasn't doing that, then one weekend he said, well, you were in Washington. I said, yeah. He said, what did you do? Well, I said, I went to the Freer to see the new Whistler exhibit. I went over to the Smithsonian to the American Arts. Uh, I love it in there. I mean, we were on a different planet. And, uh, I could just imagine him doing that with Dole. Well, see, <laughs> I mean, you know what Dole would have done. <laughs> he would have just kind of blinked or turned to the wall. But it was just, just but no, nothing ran there. The sequel during the Clinton administration, when, when the government shuts down, and, oh. and, and you and Dole, in effect, you're chained to, to the House position whether you like it or not. I mean, what was that like? Well, we just came to work, I think I did, and the tourists were all standing out there and the things were closed, and I said, well, the house did this. <laughs> they say, well, the bastards, I'm trying to get to see my kid, see the Washington Monument, and uh, uh, they closed Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, and the governor said, "We'll how much will it, cost you, Bruce Babbitt, to run the park for, for uh, two or three weeks, well, two or three hundred thousand. He said, I've got the money. And Bruce said, well, I think we can work that out. And Bruce never called back. I told Bruce later, you know, pal, I enjoyed working with you, but you never called back on that one, and that was a phony. And uh, you, you let people know that. You don't say, I'm going to screw you the next time. You just let people know your disappointment. And that leads me to one that is very important to me, and, and it was stunning Bob's reaction. When I took on the media out there, you know, big blabbermouth, and came out of the, of the White House, and, they kept, and all they were asking about was, you know, the Iran-Contra and so on, and Dole said, you go handle it, I'm tired of these guys. Well, I was tired of them too, and I went out there and they asked, what about, uh, what about uh, President and Iran? I said, look, there's a hearing going on uh, it will be resolved. You've got good people on both sides of the aisle probing that. And I said, I've, and the guy shoved this, you know, uh, recorder like that, and I bit it like a mouth organ, you know, like that, which was not a good thing to do. And then I said, and then you keep asking these marvelous questions, and you stand out there whining, going, Mr. President, Mr. President. And I said, you're just trying to stick it in his gazoo in his old gazoo. Well, they were stunned, you know. They didn't. Not, they thought a gazoo was a musical instrument anyway, the dummies. And uh, so uh, then, of course, the paper the next day is this grotesque. My mother called, oh, Time Magazine, Diane Walker said, you know what I have on this film? I said, I can only guess. <laughs> and there it was. Anyway, Dole was in Baltimore. A media, a, a reporter came up to him and said, uh, did you know what your assistant leader did over in Washington? Dole said, what did he do? And he told him, he gave him the phrase, and Dole said, as Dole would say, well, maybe he was trying to, thinking of the media, maybe he was trying to out-agnew Agnew. Well, now that hurt me. I thought to myself, now you know I know Dole, and I trust him, but he he didn't he didn't see that. I mean, the word Agnew is what got me. 
out, but I understood it in the context of how Agnew hated the media and, and that, that fitted, but the Agnew. I waited a day and I said, uh, Bob, I need to see you. And uh, yeah, hell, you know, open that old pencil. What's up, pal? I said, I saw your quote in the Baltimore Sun. I said, it never appeared in the Washington papers. And uh, I just want to tell you, that really hurt me. He said, what? I said, the quote about Agnew. He said, what do you mean? I said, that hurt. I was pained by that. His jaw flopped down on his shirt. He said, I would, I would never do that to you. I said, I know, but that's the way I read it. And it was painful for me. And I don't think anybody had ever done one of those. Because his humor is not directed that way, but it can shear uh, a person who's involved. And uh, he, he got up. He said, I just I can't believe it. I said, I know, I know. You don't have to believe it. But it, it did uh, disappoint me and hurt that's all I wanted to tell you. I love you, but that's that's it. Never, ever, ever again was there any anything ever close to that when 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 in our relationship. Because you know, and I think that there were people that had misread his humor, and 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 they were out there. I think there were people who who thought he tried to. And he, he, he would never have done it uh, intentionally, but that, but that it was left as a, as a seed, you know. Now Strom, he'd go to Strom, he'd say, Strom, going to tell the fact you knew Thomas Jefferson, so on. Strom, oh, Bob, I love that. That'd be, that'd be funny. That'd be a great story. I knew Thomas Jefferson, you know. And, uh, and he'd, 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 he'd a kind, kind man. But I think that uh, there was a time or two, not with me, because that, that resolved everything forever for us, because I, I love the guy. But I think there were people who thought, you know, uh, I didn't like that. And, and, and he would never have known it. And he would have never thought about it, more importantly, because it wouldn't have been in him to think that he had intended or ever intended to hurt anyone. Did he discuss with you his decision to leave the Senate? Mm-hmm. Were you surprised when it? No, you could see the, you know, uh, and then, and then when, uh, when he, when he, when he saw Trent Lott gearing up to go after me, and and Trent had told me a dozen times, he said, "I'm not interested in your job." I was fast asleep, you know, Jesus, and uh, and uh, and then he geared up, and uh, Dole could suddenly see that he was he was getting close and Dole, unbeknownst to me, started to call guys in to the office to, to say, you know, I shouldn't be in this race, but I am and I, I want you to support Al. And that was pretty hazardous because that got out of the room, you know. Alphonse said, who do I have to kill for Christ's sake, you know, I will get old Al in here. But uh, there were others who, who then went back to, to the core of, you know, his supporters say, you know, Dole is not helping you. Was so, that ideological, generational, stylistic, personal? What what 
were the factors at work there? With me? Yeah, you and Watt. And what does that say about the Senate? I was, I was not uh, forceful enough. I was not partisan enough. I was not uh, carrying the agenda enough. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I, I went over to, what that guy's name, there's the office over there, you know, he was with Gordon Allett back in, you know, the guy with glasses, he leads the charge over there, he was the messiah of that group. I told him I wouldn't bring those things up, as the lead, uh, I said, as, as the guy who controls, you know, I'm the whip, I'm not going to bring him up. Oh, Jesus, he was so furious, and that remained so. But then, what? No, what was your question? Well, in terms of the oh, factors. Well, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was too pleasant. Uh, I was, uh, you know, too easy. So obviously, didn't have the fire. You know, you got to have these bastards are going to wipe out Democrats. We're here to wipe out Democrats. We're not here. And yet, I'll tell you, Trent has been through the fire, and I think he does a, a, a good job. And he, but you have to go through the fire. And, and he went through the fire because when, when he got dinged, nobody was there for him. And uh, if that had happened to Dole, it never would have. Nothing would have happened to Dole because he had all the relationships of trust, even people that didn't agree with him. But I think with Trent, it was just, Al's a great guy, but we need, we need younger guys. And besides that, he's still goofy on abortion, you know, don't forget. And he had waited until all of his pals got elected from the House. He was just scoring them up. While, while I was dreaming for 10 years, he'd watch guy after guy come over from the House because they were so fed up over there in that slaughterhouse. And they'd come over, and old Trent, the first thing he'd say to him, and I'd ask Olympia Snow, I said, Olympia, I thought you'd help me on he said, I, I would do anything for you, but Trent Lott, when I came to the Senate, asked me if I ever, if he ever ran for something, would I be there? Mm. Now that's, so he, he, he laid his bridges, and, and he's good. And every time I come to Washington, especially after his crush, I pop in and see him, and, and I think he and, and he and Dole work together. Dole can work with anyone, anyone. Mm. And they said, well, Dashiell, you know, Dole will outshine Dashiell, and poor Dashiell is just a boy wandering around with the lions and got eaten by rats, you know, and, and Dole was very careful there to be sure that he didn't, uh, you know, quote, outshine Tom Dashiell, and they live right up here on the same floor, and they're great friends. So... Did you advise him? I mean, when he... What was the point of leaving the Senate? Was for, it supposed to jumpstart the campaign? Was it supposed to... You know, change the conversation Who? in '96. I mean, what was what was the reason? What was the rationale for Dole leaving? Was it just to concentrate on the campaign oh, that he couldn't? Oh yeah, uh, he said, "I can't, I can't lead uh, and do this." And he called us together, and then we all stood there when he did the full, the full announcement. He just said, "I can't, can't serve two masters." Uh, and, and I think I've done a good job as leader. Well, everybody clapped, even the Democrats. I mean, that was an amazing conference because Democrats and Republicans were there to say that Dole had been the fairest, most able leader that they'd served under. And I think uh, then his disappointment there came with, uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, Jack Kemp because, uh, you know, Dole did for Ford what he was thinking Jack Kemp would do for him. And Jack Kemp, the first couple of weeks, really threw the bombs and was 
playing the, 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 the dole role with Ford. And then I think Kemp's staff got to him and said, hey, better cool it, because next time you'll be the candidate for president of the United States if you just stay out of this, this kind of dogfight business. That was tough for Bob and Elizabeth to, to watch that, because then the rest of the campaign, the debate of Al Gore and, and Jack Kemp would, you know, you just grab your lunch, hope you can keep it down bad. And, and so then he, then aside from the strictures on his humor and, and, uh, and the inability of his vice presidential campaign to throw some lightning bolts where Bob couldn't because he'd thrown enough uh, in the previous combat, just must have been the most frustrating campaign ever known to man or woman. What do you think he should be remembered for? As one hell of a great guy, and, and uh, not just a patriot, but uh, 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 a wondrous leader of, of America at a time when we thirsted for it, and he gave it. Uh, and he gave it in a way which, uh, which, uh, which uh, pleased people. They were they were kind of honored to see this man uh, uh, who had persevered and persevered and was sitting in a darkened room for 110 days or 93, uh, all dried up human being, just come out glowing like a light bulb and ready to uh, throw himself into service for a country that he'd already thrown himself into service and given parts of his anatomy. So then he gave part of his soul and that's the way he lived it. Yeah. What, what kind of president do you think he would have been? The what? What kind of president? You think he would have been? Oh, he'd have been a lot of fun. <laughs> he'd have gotten people in the room, you know, and say, what the hell are you doing? He wouldn't have said that. He'd say, why are you doing this? He'd have gone to TIP. Uh, he'd have gone to their leadership. Uh, he could work with uh, anybody. Uh, and he would say, why are we doing this? Why, why can't we pass this? What is the problem here? And, and then he'd have lieutenants and he had plenty of those, Duberstein, I mean, and boy, he knew who to use, and he had good people around him, Sheila. Sheila was awesome. So he would have, he would have kept things flowing. Uh, there wouldn't have been veto threats, and he'd had people, you know, to think that uh, this president never had a, you know, Harry Reid told me, he said, I never was in the White House for four years of this administration. You can't do that. No one would have never done that. And... Uh, and uh, it's unfortunate. And uh, and Dole was a facilitator. He he he. His job was to make things work. If they said, well, if you should talk to North Korea, he'd say, well, who do we who? Let's get started. Well, what about Iran and Syria? Well, start putting something together. Surely we can all agree that we shouldn't just sit over here and slaughter each other and kill babies and blow up marketplaces and weddings for God's sake. And uh, that's what he'd be doing. And uh, uh, in his own way, inimitable way, with with freedom to do it, where he would be able to use his humor, unalloyed and, and untempered, and and uh, and uh, and just just him, just you know, he it's it's, it's as Will Rogers said, and and he's got to be the modern version. It would be he said, it's great to be great, but it's greater to be human. And that was.
is uh, that's not a bad epitaph. Not a bad one. And the Thank other you. one on would be uh, you'd want him on your side. Because, boy, when he was on your side, he was loyal. Didn't matter whether you crashed. Didn't matter what happened to you, but uh, the loyalty, his loyalty never left you, uh, even when you had, quote, fallen from grace. I fell a few times from grace, and he never said a word, just always as supportive as can be. Well, you're on your own. That's now. great. You'll have to. <laughs> That's great.